Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Chris Hedges. He's a New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning war correspondent who for two decades covered conflicts in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. He returned to the United States to become a powerful social critic and critic of capitalism as the author of a dozen books including War as a Force That Gives Us Meaning, Death of the Liberal Class, and Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. He's a columnist for Truthdig and the host of the Emmy-nominated show on Contact on RT America. So first, thank you, as always, for all of your great work. And second, thank you for being on the program. Sure. So what does life look like at the end of Empire? Well, that is a very interesting question because it is exactly the question I asked uh, two years ago when I set out to write my new book, which is called America the Farewell Tour, which will be out in August. And uh, the what life looks like in a decayed society uh, is expressed through various pathologies that we see all around us. Uh, suicide, opioid addictions, and, of course, overdoses, uh, the false idea that we can build uh, an economy and rescue ourselves from debt peonage through gambling, uh, and the industry has become quite adept at uh, at feeding the addiction of gambling. Um, and in fact, I found in the book that gamblers, uh, as an addicted group, have the highest rates of suicide, hate crimes, uh, sexual sadism, which you have spoken out against, and which very few people on the left have had the courage uh, to emulate your critique, um, morbid obesity. These are all uh, examples of a society uh, in, in deep distress. And those problems are not solved by uh, more, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitation clinics uh, or more uh, Gamblers Anonymous meetings. Um, they are solved by restoring the moral health of the society, um, which, of course, the things, the, the, those pathologies and the decay is getting worse uh, under the Trump administration and the kleptocrats that he has put into power. Um, so the end of empire um, looks, uh, and the end of all empire, uh, is really defined by both uh, moral decadence and physical decay, despair, um, and, uh, and, 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 and is expressed through, uh, aberrant behavior. Um, I mean, we see almost every other day in this country a mass shooting, this nihilistic violence. Uh, so I think these are all, and I was, I was looking at Emile Durkheim's book on so brilliant work at the end of the, uh, 19th century on suicide, where, uh, he made that argument that, that suicide was the product, he called it anomie, of, of, of people who became disconnected from their communities, uh, lost control of their lives, uh, and fell into deep despondency or despair. So, um, you know, just look around us. So the, the, the physical decay, uh, the, the, the moral decay, uh, the, and the way it's expressed is embraced by uh, it, this kind of very sick and frightening culture, which is manifested in a figure like Trump. I always say Trump is not uh, 
uh, not the disease. So Trump is the symptom. So, can you, can you, why should, okay, I'm going to read a quote, which you knew I was going to get to at some point. I'm going to read a quote by Edward Gibbon. And then after that, the question I'm going to ask you is, why, why does this happen at end of empire? Why, why, why are there these commonalities of sort of macro sociology becoming micro psychology or something? And here's the quote. Um, this is, this is Gibbon writing in the 1780s about the end of the Roman Empire. The five marks of the Roman decaying culture, concerned with displaying affluence instead of building wealth, obsession with sex and perversions of sex, art becomes freakish and sensationalistic instead of creative and original, widening disparity between very rich and very poor, increased demand to live off the state. And I just find that so remarkably, I want to say prescient, but it's not prescient because he was writing history. And so how how does this happen, that there are these commonalities through the end of empire? Why, why is this? Because uh, you uh, build, uh, and this was true in the decline of the Roman Empire, you build an elite uh, and a bureaucracy which will serve that elite. Uh, that is diverted from the common good towards the empowerment and the enrichment of a tiny cabal. In the case of ancient Rome, it was the ruling families who, like the Bushes and the Clintons, would just trade uh, positions. You, you had, uh, after the rise of Augustus, uh, traditional, I, I don't know that Rome ever achieved the democracy of ancient Athens, but you had a Senate that became... Uh, uh, a kind of um, parody of, of, of what it had been, that it, that it was the form of the Senate remained, but it had been stripped of any real democratic uh, power. Um, and uh, essentially what happens is that any time a cabal, whether it's oligarchic or corporate or fascist or communist, seizes power, you create a system of paralysis, which is, of course, what we have created. Uh, because all uh, institutions that once made incremental or piecemeal reform possible, i.e. gave a voice to the grievances and protected to a certain extent, I don't want to uh, you know, be uh, too utopian about America, but to a certain extent protected the civil liberties uh, of the populace, uh, everything is now directed towards uh, this tiny cabal uh, and, and, and their particular desires and lusts, uh, and everybody else is ignored. They don't count anymore. Uh, and so once you reach that uh, point, then these uh, totalitarian systems, while they are different in terms of how they, you know, in, in terms of kind of the, uh, some of the details, and, and uh, uh, but they function essentially in the same manner. Uh, and uh, because there is a kind of disemboweling of the state, um, all of these systems look for scapegoats uh, in which to, to blame for the kind of uh, precipitous decline. Uh, and these systems, uh, totalitarian systems, autocratic systems, also do spectacle and entertainment very well. And Cicero writes about how uh, in ancient Rome, as the democracy decayed and the oligarchic class seized complete control, 
it staged more and more elaborate spectacles in the arena uh, so that people's emotional uh, and intellectual life were invested in the absurd, uh, in the trivial, in the banal, uh, in the salacious. We forget that there was a huge sexual component to the uh, to the kind of entertainment industry at the end of ancient Rome. So um, there are marked characteristics, uh, and I would call them pathologies, uh, that express themselves in a dying culture. And, of course, one of them is what anthropologists call the crisis cult. Uh, crisis cults are where you retreat into magical thinking, when you kind of can't cope with the onslaught of reality. Uh, so we saw, for instance, at the end of the genocidal campaigns uh, in the late 19th century, in 1890, 1889, the rise of the ghost dance, where if you put on a particular shirt, um, you could stop the, the bullets, uh, that, uh, that uh, through the ghost dance, the white Americans and Euro-Americans would disappear, all the dead warriors would rise up from the ground, the herds of buffalo would come back. But that that takes place in all decayed uh, societies. And I think that that's how we have to look at the Christian right, as a crisis cult, um, the rapture, uh, the end times. Um, so we're very far advanced. Uh, and what we're really waiting for, which isn't going to be that long in coming, is uh, another economic collapse. Uh, and this time around, the oligarchs don't have a plan B. Um, they already have reduced interest rates to zero. In, they were actually moments in Europe where they were was below zero. I, they were paying people to borrow money. Banks were paying businesses to borrow money. Um, and what have they done? I mean, we have subsidized uh, the financial industry, Wall Street, uh, Citibank, etc., to the tune of trillions. I mean, the uh, of dollars. Uh, that money has to be paid back, even though it's it's lent at virtually zero percent interest. And and instead of investing in the country, as China, by the way, did after the two thousand and eight crisis, and building new t- deal type infrastructure projects, all they've done is uh, what Mark Marx called fictitious capital: use money to make money, primarily through debt peonage. So they borrow money at zero percent interest, uh, and then uh, shove these uh, student loans down uh, the, the throats of uh, college students. Uh, if you're late on your credit card, uh, it's 28% interest, uh, all sorts of hidden fees uh, in medical bills, even if you have insurance. Um, but that's not a sustainable system. The housing bubble is now back. Um, you know, the stock market is highly inflated. I mean, what did the oligarchs do with these huge tax cuts? Um, well, they didn't invest in workers. They didn't raise wages. They didn't hire more workers. They bought back their stock. Um, so the value of the stock increases artificially, and then the managers or the CEOs of these companies, because their compensation is tied to the value of stock, get huge bonuses. But it's it's uh, completely cannibalistic. And um, uh, one of the things Gibbon mentioned in that quote, which is true, is that you – and also, by the way, Karl Marx wrote about this, although Marx was steeped in the classics, so he knew Gibbon um, – was that then these entities begin to consume the government, consume the bureaucracy, consume the system that actually makes, in this case, capitalist democracy possible. Uh, so, for instance, uh, we're watching the destruction of public, the privatization of public education into these charter schools, these vocational schools. 
Uh, we're watching uh, private companies, Bose, Allen, Hamilton, 99% of its budget comes from the government, uh, the rise of mercenary forces, uh, the, uh, they, they are, they are, they are extracting, uh, and of course they want to privatize social security, uh, they are extracting, uh, the very marrow from the structures of power that, that sustains the system itself. So all of this is kind of, uh, swirling around us and is really waiting for a crisis to trigger what I think will be a very frightening period in American history. And how does – there's another question I want to ask, but before I get there, can, can you talk for a moment about the relationship between end of empire and death squads? It seems that uh, as economic systems collapse – I believe you used the word scapegoat earlier. I'm, I, I'm not sure – and well, I, I think about the relationship between the economic collapse of the twenties and the uh, rise of fascism, the uh, rise of the KKK in the United States in the teens and twenties, and then you've written about this in an entirely different context with uh, Chaco Canyon and death squads there at the end of Empire. Can you talk about? Uh, either state or non-state violence, well, let's call it reactionary violence at the end of empire. Right, so all empires, Antonio Gramsci writes about this, what sustains empire is a fictitious ideology. Uh, in the case of the United States, it's a respect for democracy, I'm, I'm saying that this is fictitious, but it is a respect for democracy, for human rights, for... Uh, the ability of everybody to get a fair chance. And when that ideology collapses uh, and is exposed as a lie, uh, and, of course, the ruling economic ideology is neoliberalism, which no longer has any credibility across the political spectrum. That's how Trump got elected. That's why Bernie Sanders uh, was able to run such a powerful insurgency within the Democratic Party, although the Democratic Party made sure he didn't get the nomination I mean, they rigged the primary, so we get the nomination. So, uh, when that ideal, when that ruling ideology no longer has any credibility, then the elites only have violence left, uh, in order to maintain control. Uh, so they're punishing the population more and more, uh, to maintain the opulence of their lifestyle. Uh, I mean, you have CEO salaries that are 5,000 times what their workers are making, uh, the Walmart family, I think, makes $11,000 an hour for doing nothing except being part of the Walmart family. So, uh, you, you, you need, uh, coercion and force, uh, because the ideology, uh, the ruling ideology is no longer effective. Uh, I mean, we, all we have to do is look at marginal communities in this country, primarily populated by people of color, to see exactly the forms of social control that are going to become even more widespread. Um, so you de-industrialize cities uh, and you redline them to leave behind primarily people of color, uh, Af African Americans in particular, uh, and then you need a form of social control uh, because there's no work. 
unless they go into the illegal economy. And so you create this massive uh, prison system. Uh, we, we imprison 25% of the world's population. We are 5% of the world's population. Half of the people in our prison complexes didn't even commit a violent crime. Uh, all of this, by the way, was uh, put into place largely by the Clinton administration and Joe Biden, who is going to run for president in 2020. Um, and, uh, and then you uh, create, I would call them death squads, you militarize police forces that kill in these communities indiscriminately, with utter impunity. Um, you take away people's due process. Uh, nobody in these, mar- I mean, virtually nobody in these marginal communities has right to a jury trial. Um, they're forced to plea out. 94% or something within our prison system never had a jury trial. Um, and uh, they are essentially have their rights uh, as citizens removed. And Hannah Arendt wrote about this in The Origins of totalitarianism when she's talking about the stateless within Europe under the rise of fascism. She herself was stateless after being held for three weeks by the Gestapo was expelled to France. So you're stripped of your citizenship. The French don't give you citizenship. And uh, she said, once you live in a society where rights become privileges, uh, you create both the legal and the fact physical mechanisms to strip a segment of that, demonize segment of that society, in our case, people of color, primarily African Americans, of their rights. Um, But in a time of distress uh, or unrest or uh, social or financial collapse, everyone can be stripped of their rights with a flick of a switch because you already have both the legal and the physical mechanisms in place. Uh, And I would include ICE, of course, as part of that. So uh that that is why societies at the end uh become so brutal uh and it was fascinating when i was visiting the chaco canyon and then reading the work of the anthropologists uh who studied the late culture of uh the chaco empire one of the perhaps you know the biggest empire uh indigenous empire in north america um that it again replicated the way uh societies in terminal uh, decline uh, always seem to play out. So part of what I'm hearing you say is that uh, that there is a sense in which rights for those who at least are somewhat on the inside of the gated community but not at the very center are um, in a sense luxuries from the perspective of the system, luxuries that the system can afford so long as it is still able to steal enough from the colonies, really. And then when that becomes endangered, um, we, those the center, uh, get down to business and sort of drop off all this uh, rights that we can no longer afford. Is that is that kind of what this is talking about? Well, yes, in this sense that as long as, let's call it the middle class, is not rested, as long as most of the society is passive uh, in the face of this kleptocracy, which always characterizes the late empire, then you don't need, uh, you know, brutal forms of coercion to keep them under control. Uh, but if you have, let's say, economic collapse, which we're headed towards, 
And of course, the uh, most dire aspect of financial collapse will be the decision on the part of the rest of the world to no longer make the dollar the reserve currency. Um, and we know what, what that looks like. All you have to do is look at Britain in the 1950s when the pound sterling was dropped as the world's reserve currency. Uh, then the value of the dollar plunges. Uh, exports become exponentially more expensive, and you can't maintain empire. U.S. Treasury bonds are worthless. People don't want to buy them. So uh, at that point, um, then the, the, the ruling oligarchs, corporate oligarchs in this case, will need uh, these harsher forms of control in order to continue to prey upon the population to extract uh, obscene profit uh, and to keep people uh, in line. Um, so uh, you never want to build a society where a segment of your society, as we have done, is in essence is stripped of your rights. That's not a particularly sophisticated concept. Uh, because uh, ruling elites, um, as rapacious as ours, will never stop there. And, and history has borne that out over and over and over. And one of the reasons that uh, the collapse of empire leads to increased racism, xenophobia, etc., it seems to me is that... Um, you know, I can get along fine with, you know, people of all, you know, colors and religions and everything else. But if I just lost my job and I have been trained not to see capitalism as the problem or the ruling elites as the problem, instead, I can come to perceive this as I lost my job because of those damn people from Mexico or because of those, you know, because of African Americans, or because of, I can come up with all sorts of, there can be, when I'm trained, again, to identify with the system itself, um, pledged my allegiance to the system, then I can look for scapegoats anywhere else to, when, when I have very real, you know, the, the farm crisis has been very real. I mean, the independent farmers have been driven out of business, and They've been driven off their land. And we can talk about the takeover of, of small farms by big ag, and that's true. But I, here's the point. is I interviewed a long time ago Joel Dyer, who wrote a book about called Harvest of Rage, about, about how a lot of these farmers were ending up far right. And he said part of the problem was that, in this case, you know they're, they're very desperate because they're, the land that's been in their family for four generations is being being foreclosed on, and he said at that point that the left was doing a really terrible job of reaching out to them, and the right, the far right, the racist right was doing a wonderful job of reaching out to them. And he said basically, if you're sitting there ready to kill yourself, you know your family's gone, your land's gone, and somebody knocks on your door, if there are Mormons reaching out to you, you're going to become Mormon, and if they're far right, you're going to become far right. And if they were were far left, if the leftists would have lefties would have done a job of reaching out, they might have gone left. And I think there's some truth to that. I, I'm throwing a whole mishmash of you. Take anything you want and run with it. Well, so what happened at, 
with the rise of Reagan and Thatcher, as Stuart Hall has written, is that uh, there was a conscious effort on the part of corporate power to dismantle the New Deal. And so they had to shift the whole perception of government. Uh, and that's where you get Reagan's thing, you know, government's not part of the solution, government's part of the problem. And to replace that idea of government as one that fosters community uh, and makes sure everyone has a chance and protects the vulnerable, etc., they built this ideology, the ruling elites built this ideology of your national identity is under attack from these forces, from these foreign forces, Muslims, undocumented workers, African Americans. Uh, and if you look at the commercial media, um, they never talk about capitalism. That's a word you're never going to hear, even on MSNBC. And so... Anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist critics, you know this as well as anyone, have already been pushed to the margins of society. And what we're seeing, because these people no longer have a counter-argument to the ruling ideology, is that they are creating mechanisms to shut even our voices down, uh, because they can't answer these criticisms, not in a rational way. So you see the rise of this anonymous group, prop or not, propaganda or not, where they take left-wing websites, including the ones that I write for that republish my stuff, uh, and accuse it of being in the service of Russia, of a foreign power. Uh, and then they get Google and Facebook and Twitter to impose algorithms, which they have done, to essentially divert traffic away from left-wing sites, like Truthdig, where I have a column every Monday. And we have seen impressions. Impressions are... If you were to type imperialism into Google, and I had written a recent article on imperialism, it would appear. Um, now you will be diverted to the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal, uh, but you won't be directed to Truthdig or any other left-wing site. And uh, and so impressions on Truthdig have gone down in the last year. And that is traffic referred to Truthdig has gone down from over 700,000 to below 200,000. The World Socialist website has seen its traffic drop by uh, 80-something percent, alternate, by 63 percent. And then coupled with this is the revoking of net neutrality that allows them to create tiers uh, within the system to slow down access to these sites. Um, I mean, this is why I have a show on RT America, uh, because I don't have anywhere else to go. I can't even go on public broadcasting. I mean, you know, not surprisingly, given the fact that the Koch brothers fund the news hour and are huge contributors to public broadcasting, along with all sorts of other corporate entities. Um, and so uh, you have, uh, you are creating a society uh, by intent, and this is going back again to the destruction of public education, uh, where, where people don't even ask the questions, because they're not even given enough information to ask the questions. And then they're easily manipulated. Uh, we saw Trump do this uh, to uh, blame uh, the outsider uh, for uh, the social and political and financial and cultural uh, decay. Uh, and as the worse it gets, um, the more the state, the despotic state, sanctions uh, violence. Uh, against the outsider 
as a kind of safety valve to direct that anger away from the, you know, the, the cabal that has seized power. That's, that's just classic, uh, despotic rule, and that's something that we are, uh, rapidly approaching. So one thing that is, um, that really makes me, that, that terrifies me is that, um, we have what seems to me a, a very bad confluence here because you have at the end of Empire, Chaco Canyon is really interesting that you had the death squads there and you had the other problems there. You had these same, and the same with the, the Roman Empire because we can, we can talk about the end of Empire and then we can also talk about, you know, sort of the iron cages that Max Weber talked about and we can talk about technology just hemming us in and we can talk about um, television as the world's best propagandistic tool of the time and, and now the internet the same way and with the control of the flow of information combine that with um, I've done interviews about and have read about and have thought about a lot the decline of long form thinking um, that has been taking place over the last, especially 40 years. And this is a, if you get these, these dreadful symptoms at the end of, uh, at the end of Empire anyway, and then when I interviewed Robert J. Lifton decades ago, I, I asked him if, if technology exacerbates psychic numbing that he talks about in his work, and he laughed and responded, technology exacerbates everything. And it seems to me that this is a, a, a confluence that makes the end of this empire much more fraught than, and we haven't even talked about ecological collapse yet, but leaving that aside, this still makes this end of empire, it seems to me, far more dangerous than many previous empires. Well, because the systems of indoctrination are so much more sophisticated along with the systems of surveillance and control. So you're right. Um, we've never seen anything like this. Um, I mean, the Stasi state in East Germany uh, was child's play compared to what the United States has set up. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you've called them, it's a term you use that I steal from you all the time, call, you know, you call these things electronic hallucinations. Um they are they are designed to destroy thought. Um, that's why you got to stay off them. Uh, I'm not on any social media. I don't own a television, uh, and yet you know you can't escape it. Even I know who Stormy Daniels is, and uh, you know Roseanne's meltdown, and you you. Uh, but you you don't want them uh, seizing control of both your time. Uh, and conditioning you for these constant adrenaline hits um, that destroy your capacity to sit down and actually think. Uh, and as you know, I wrote a book called Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy and the Triumph of Spectacle, that talked about the danger of severing ourselves from a print-based culture and uh, embracing uh, spectacle and illusion. Uh, I mean, the, the, what's happening now to the commercial news media is that it is a full partner in the reality show presidency. Um, and they largely created 
Trump. I mean, NBC created the fictional pers- personality of Trump on The Apprentice, which he then used to sell to the American public. Um, and it's it's all burlesque all the time. Uh, and it, it's I find it just terrifying. I mean, I was at the gym the other day and saw CNN, and it was a long segment on something new from Stormy Daniels, and then a roundtable discussion about Roseanne Barr's show. This is this isn't news. I come out of news. I'm a old newspaper guy. Um, so I think when you look at the decay of society, everything becomes salacious. Everything becomes gossip. And that was certainly true at the end of the Roman Empire. Um, true at the end of the uh, Habsburg Empire. I mean, any empire. Look at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and in a way, it becomes an effective mechanism, again, to divert attention away from the collapse. And you mentioned environmental collapse. I mean, it, the, the polar ice caps are melting at a rate that even the most pessimistic climate scientist a few years ago would have never predicted. Large trees are dying. Uh, communities in the north uh, are sinking because the permafrost is melting. Um, and, and, and what are we doing? Uh, we are, uh, doing what all societies do at the end, um, which is, uh, uh, engaging in kind of emotional, uh, and psychological, uh, retreat, uh, into the embrace of, uh, of, 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 of depravity, and we haven't even mentioned pornography. We're a completely pornified uh, society. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, because of you, actually, uh, the fourth chapter in my book, which is called Sadism, is set at kink.com, which I'd never heard of till you told me about it. And, and I went out there and sat through, quote-unquote, classes, you know, of torture, literally, how to torture people. Uh, and as Wilhelm Reich uh writes in the mass psychology of fascism uh and i'll just read you that sentence he says fascism countenances countenances that religiosity that stems from sexual perversion and it transforms the masochistic character of the old patriarchal religion of suffering into a sadistic religion in short it transposes religion from the other worldliness of the philosophy of suffering to the this worldliness of sadistic murder um, and uh, I, 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 we, we have to, and I, you have been very outspoken about this, one of the few, we have to also recognize that accompanying all of these pathologies is the loss of the capacity for intimacy, the objectification of women uh, as, uh, as essentially tools to be abused physically. I mean, I interviewed women on these kink sets uh, and boy, this pain is not simulated. These women are beaten. They are black and blue. When they finish, they take painkillers before. I mean, everyone I interviewed who, who's left it is uh, uh, dealing with severe post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and these films are just, there's no other word for it. They're just sick. Um, they're just sickening. Um, and, and, and that is a huge element uh, within the culture. We are a completely pornified Culture, which is why the stills that were released from Abu Ghraib uh, look like stills from from porn. That's not accidental. Yeah, it's it's completely um, 
mainstreamed and um, horrifying and again predictable. We have Edward Gibbon saying this in the 1780s. And we have, um, this is not quite time to wind down yet. We still have about 13, 14 minutes, but I'm going to ask you what would normally be a wind down question, um, which is, so I've interviewed over the past couple of weeks, I've interviewed some people who've been working on these issues for a long time, working on environmental issues, especially back all the way from the sixties and the seventies. And both of the people I talked to or three of the people I talked to recently have all said that the momentum is just so fierce, so strong that, you know, they feel like their work has been throwing a tiny pebble against the incoming tide or something. And, you know, I, I'm not countenancing quitting. I'm, I'm, I'm in this till my last breath. And that doesn't alter the fact that when I read sort of macroeconomic accounts, when I, when I read your wonderful book that's coming out, um, in August, the fact that these are macro sociological, I think I said macroeconomic, I didn't mean that, macro sociological, larger social trends. Decades ago, when I read Overshoot by William Catton, one of the things he talked about in there is he said that if you have a certain number of people acting in a certain way, you could almost call that a fate because it is so hard to change an entire culture. So what do we do given that we care, you and I and others, care about decency, care about justice, care about sanity? What do we do in the face of this momentum that is not only technological and modern, but also is a common pattern from the collapse of empire, a predictable result of the collapse of empire? Well, we have to create in essence, walled communities where we nurture and protect those values that the wider society are attempting to destroy. Um, as much as possible, we have to come, we have to create parallel institutions, uh, to sustain ourselves and empower ourselves. Uh, and all of that will be done locally. Uh, because when collapse comes, the elites will retreat into their gated compounds where they will have access to services and health care and goods and security that the rest of us won't. Um, they're not, they're not going to be out there taking care of us. We'll have to take care of ourselves. That's why, you know, uh, food, local food markets, uh, sustainable agriculture, uh, sustainable energy, uh, you know, all of this becomes in moments of distress, these become political acts, uh, local currencies. The more that we can dis-unplug ourselves, disconnect ourselves from the corporate monolith, um, the, the safer and the better we'll be. Um, and, and so that really means attempting to take power locally. Now, let, we can't be naive. I mean, if you go back a couple years ago in Denton, Texas, the community rose up against the fracking industry, uh, and what did the state legislature do? It essentially overrode, because they, the fracking sites around the city were making sick and poisoning the drinking, making people sick and poisoning the drinking water, and the, the, um, 
the state legislature essentially outlawed uh, the efforts by the local community to control their own environment. So those will be the forces. We also have seen this with fracking in Pennsylvania. These will be the forces that we will have to contend with. Um, but we are going to have to begin to rebuild community uh, and, and rebuild local power structures to pit power against power. Will we succeed? Uh, I, I just don't think it's helpful to be Pollyannish uh, or naive. I, mean, I think part of, uh, for me, what resistance is about and ultimately what hope is about is facing the bleakness of what's out there uh, rather than lying to ourselves about it. Uh, and it's difficult, especially given what's happening to the climate. Um, uh, but we have to remain rooted in reality. Um, I would say that if if you don't resist, you can't use the word hope. Um, you know, we we have a kind of moral imperative uh, to fight without being overly dramatic for systems of life, uh, especially those of us who are older. I mean, I have kids, uh, and what kind of a world are they going to inherit? I at least want them to look back and say that their father tried, that he wasn't complicit and he wasn't passive. One of the, the many things I love about your work is that you unabashedly, that you're not afraid of using the word moral or talking about moral imperatives. And I think this is a huge problem on the left specifically, that it seems that for the most part the left has ceded morality to the right. Seated, seated any claim of morality, I should say, to the right. And so there are, I mean, there are lefty screeds about against all forms of morality. And I find that both uh, tactically absurd and also, to use the same word, morally repugnant. So I appreciate that very much about your work. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I, I think that this is, a, you know, Freud called these forces of death, or actually they were called later by post-Freudians, but it's Thanatos. I mean, that they, that there are two forces in life, Eros, that, what, the, that force to nurture, preserve, protect, uh, forces of love, forces of reverence, but it's always pitted against forces of death. And as Freud wrote, these forces are in eternal conflict, both within the individual and in society. Uh, and the forces of Thanatos are ascendant uh, around us uh, and it's imperative upon us to embrace those forces of life uh, and fight for them um, you know Kant has a great quote where he says uh, if justice perishes on earth life has lost its meaning uh, and I, as you know I come out of divinity school uh, but I think that uh, resistance, um, fighting on um, behalf of the oppressed, um, standing up against the lies of the corporate state, um, these give meaning to life. Uh, and I would even say, I would even go beyond that. And, and as Tolstoy said at one point, the only true happiness is living for others. Um, and you see that with parents with children, and I have four of them, uh, you know, it can it can be a headache, um, and yet, and and sometimes that happiness is very bittersweet. Um, but it, it it is a real happiness as opposed to the emotional and hedonistic highs that uh, uh, are 
defined as happiness by the consumer culture. Of course, money being the primary route uh, they will tell you to happiness. Um, I went at the age of 10 to an elite boarding school as a scholarship student, one of 16, and lived around the uber-rich. And I can tell you they are immensely unhappy human beings uh, who, no matter how rich they are, uh, never have enough. Uh, and you can see it in, you know, the lust by these billionaires from Bezos to the Koch brothers to everyone else who have insane amounts of money uh, and just want more and more and more. Um, and, of course, it distorts their own relationships. Uh, I mean, m- most of the relationships they have are, uh, are, are, are built around a kind of mendacity and uh, obsequiousness. So um, I, I, I think that um, on every level, it's incumbent upon us to stand up against these forces, and I think that standing up and resisting against these forces, even if we lose, allows us at least to be complete and whole human beings. Yeah, I think I think a lot about a line by R.D. Lang, um, how do you plug a void, plugging a void? And I think when you talk about the, the misery of the rich, they're attempting to plug an existential hole with money and that's one reason for the insatiability. And it's one reason for the insatiability of pornography because it's not meeting the need that it's purporting to meet. It's Right, it, it meets the need temporarily. And then you become it becomes blasé. It's why porn gets more and more and more violent because you, you need to keep pushing it further and further in order to get that momentary high. But yeah, it's, all, it's the same with money. Uh, the same with the acquisition of of, of goods and services. Um, but it, it's ultimately not only futile, but, but self-destructive. So a person I think about um, fairly often, she's oh, now I can't remember his name. He's one of the, um, he's one of the resist, German resistors in World War II on the Eastern Front. And on D-Day, or after D-Day, a lot of the resistors said, why are we, why are we even trying? Because we're risking our lives for nothing when the war is essentially over. And he responded that, um, first off, there were people dying every day, civilians dying every day that the war lasted. So the sooner they get the war over, and if this included stopping Hitler, you know, doing their coup, then they should do it. And the other, the other thing he talked about is he, he said, I want to show to history that there were at least some decent people in Germany. And I don't want history to say that every German went along with that. And I always find that, Henning von Treskow, I always find that incredibly inspiring that as as this culture is wrecking havoc on so much, you know, it's a story in some ways, and it's a dreadful story in other ways, but it's a story of... of, um, of Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, are there, are there, how many good people are there here? And I want the frogs to know, and I want the humans who come after to know that there were some of us who were still decent people at the end. Well, and go to Germany today. Who, who do they hold up? You know, they hold up the White Rose. They hold up Niemöller. They hold up, uh, von Stauffenberg. They hold up these figures that actually did resist to give them another narrative to create 
moral signposts for the society that comes after them. Um, so I don't think resistance is ever futile. Um, I mean, justice is going to, injustice is going to outlive us all. It's a perpetual fight. This is, you know, what Max Weber is saying in his essay, Politics as a Vocation. It never ends. We must always be vigilant. Um, but it is that kind of ironic point of light um, that uh, that guides future generations and inspires future generations uh, to do the right thing. Uh, and if everyone is silent, those lights aren't there. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. And I always appreciate not only your analysis itself, but the um, the eloquence that you that, that you manifest this process that we're talking about of the importance of long form thinking by by making clear the importance of people doing the work of reading of reading other writers metabolizing their uh, their thoughts and then making them your own and I think that is something that's something that they, that the people need to do with your work as we read your work we metabolize it and then we we you know one writer once said to me that all of those writers who are working in the right direction were all standing and standing through time holding hands you know and you are reaching back to the people before and reaching forward to the ones who come after and I just want you to know that your work's appreciated. Well, thank you, Derek. Thank you very much. And I would like to thank listeners for listening. My guest today has been Chris Hedges. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio and the Progressive Radio Network.